1: The founder of Whitetail Landscapes. Your host, John Teeter.
0: Hi, I'm John Teeter with Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. I have Todd Chippy on again today from Empire Land and Management. I'm excited to have Todd on. We're going to talk about access and everything, or surrounding access. You know, over the years, I've really had a chance to you know, develop, I think, a forte in understanding property and land management, and Todd has as well. You know, we've got a unique approach, I think, in a lot of ways. We look at things similar and different. And, of course, dealing with different areas, you've got to approach things that really kind of get to the root of, of the importance of hunting. When I think of hunting, I think of access and I think of opportunity, But a lot of times when I'm building a hunting property, I don't necessarily start with access until we start to get the hunting aspect of it. And once we get the hunting, then we start thinking about access. So, you know, I I think we'll talk about the other facets of property design, but I think access is is king. It, it gets you into a property. You know, some properties have better access than others. So we really need to think about, you know, the importance of aspect in the, in the scheme of design. So, Todd, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming back and being a part of this thing. You know, how are you doing? Good. How are you doing, John? Good, good. What projects have you been working on out in Wisconsin?
1: Uh, I've been on every different land around here lately and uh, just setting up for the year today. Today I was on my tractor with that tooth bar, I've got the ratchet rake that straps onto the bucket. And I was actually now the swamps, the cattails, and where there's some canary grass, I use it in two ways. One, to drag the canary off of the, where it's starting to smother out the red willow dogwood and some tag alder that I want to have expand out and grow and sucker out. Canary grass, reed canary can smother that out. And additionally, I'm gonna burn a section So right now, even though there's no way you could take a tractor in there, it's frozen and the snow melted the last couple of days. So I actually use that tooth rake, ratchet rake to cut in a fire break around a big patch of cattails and then to rake some stuff away from some
0: red osier dogwood. Interesting. The tag alder is just one of those plants that are, you know, in my opinion, one of the uh, I guess probably the best one of the best cover plants especially in wetland areas you just you you just take advantage of it if you don't have it or not familiar with it it just happens to be you know one of those just great plants uh, again if you got it on your property take advantage of it so you're you're promoting it of course which I think that's a that's a good thing
1: yeah I'm trying to get it to grow more you know the deer love it they rub on it they bed next to it it forms a you know shrub cars some of them are like huge. One acre, two acre, three acre, and bigger shrub cars is what they're referred to as. But the way tag alder grows, it gives that little hump, and it's excellent bedding as well. So if you do have wetland, and if you don't have it, if you get your hands on some tag alder and get it started, it's a it's an excellent and plant. it's
0: it's great firewood because uh, in in some of the areas, if you're going to do wetland work, one of the recommendations so you don't get nailed by the feds is going in there and. And I probably shouldn't recommend this, but uh, in your specific area, uh, you can use it for obviously uh, firewood, and that's a, a means to to take some of it out if you're you're working uh, or you're concerned with land disturbance or soil disturbance in a wetland area. So just just a recommendation there. Hopefully, oh. they do not get me in trouble with the feds. <laughs> good
1: idea. No, usually forestry mulcher this time of the year makes really good access trails through it.
0: So. <laughs> yeah, if you can get away yeah. with that too, uh, that that's that's actually the best the best option. Access is is really one of those things that, you know, as I said earlier in the intro, you know, when we're focusing on access, a lot of times, you know, you have limited access, maybe you have access from one side. Most importantly, you know, people say, well, should I buy a property based on access? And I argue in some cases, maybe so. I mean, if you have a small property and you have northwest access, that makes the property probably hunt smaller because you're gonna to have to move the deer into other locations or in place them in locations to make that hunting better. Access can be everything for you. And if you have east access or south axis or north axis or access from all sides, the more access the better. And and I think a lot of times we get kind of caught up in heard this, you know, riddling equation on YouTube and this access is the best or this wind condition, I have to focus on this when I'm I'm coming up with my plan listen, take the time to look at your property, take the time to look at a property you're going to purchase and think about, you know, what's the negatives. If access is a negative, it may not be the right property to purchase. And we're going to come up with, uh, I think in this discussion, a, a bunch of options for you. You know, Todd's done a, a probably a lot more than I have coming up with access plans and, and developing strategies to get, you know, his guys in and out or his hunters in and out without, you know, being detected. And, there's a lot of strategies to get in and out of these spots, and I always think of number one. I think a sound, depending on you know the type of you know commotion that you make going in. I think of scent. You know, are you leaving scent behind, or you're blowing your scent in an area? And lastly, sight. The limiting the the sight aspect of it. Those are pretty much the the focus points that kind of drive. Okay, what's the strategy? So, Todd, just kind of laying it on. You know, maybe let's talk a property that you've worked on recently and some of the, you know, your equation and success of coming up with great access for an individual land client of yours.
1: You know, I'm glad that you brought up access to, is paramount when you're looking at a piece of property. And a lot of, you and I have talked about this in the past, a lot of people will say it's the only thing, it's the main thing is access, always access first. And you also, when you're looking at a property, access to what? so a lot of times the property you can build access you can use terrain you can use some of the things that we talked about earlier a bulldozer to make a berm uh, trenching but the property has to have bedding and it has to has an area that they can transition from bedding into into the food that you can intercept them on so to me i like to build the interior of a property and then we'll talk about access after that so It can be if it's barren and there's no way to get out of your car without all seeing white tails taken off the other direction, um, then obviously correct. Like you and I said, you can't just solely go off access, and it has to be access to something, and sometimes you have to build the something first. That being said, there's a couple different options for access that that we know about and we talk about all the time, and anybody that studies this at all knows. So number one being switchgrass. That works great. Takes two to three years to really get it established and then it's got to be mowed or burned to maintain it. So there's some pros and cons with switchgrass. You can use something that's quicker, like conceal from Whitetail Institute or plot screen from another company or Egyptian wheat, which grows right away, but it takes till the end of summer before it reaches its full height. So in the meantime, any improvements you're doing, deer are watching you walk in and out and can develop watching for those things from their bedding areas, watching for that access from their bedding areas, even though it's going to be somewhat hidden. Additionally, you can hinge cut trees, drop trees, if you're in a wooded area. I know that that's a way to uh, block uh, block deer from seeing you for your access by hinge cutting, especially if it's pines. People say, well, pines are no good for hinge cutting. Well, lay them down with the needles on in a row and you've got a really nice screen to get into an area secretly. Um, and usually, the way pines are planted, you can drop them right on top of there as it starts to crush down in a couple of years,
0: yeah, and that's a good point. I saw a post I think yesterday on Facebook. I don't pay too much attention to these things, but I saw somebody had made a statement like, You're hinge cutting pines, and i I feel not in the purpose of hinge cutting a tree for survival purposes, but hitting it at the right height and level to create that screening or buffering or layering effect and you know, you may do that occasionally to create that separation. You know, and I think the one thing that I, I recognize is even when I'm building shelter belts or in this case where I'm, I'm working in very steep terrain settings and I've been working in saddles and trying to make sure the deer aren't going down these saddles, I'll actually create parallel trails to the saddles with hinge cutting that's dense and height enough where I'm creating this basically little compartment that I travel up through. Now, along that compartment, I take snow fence like the orange snow fence you can buy really cheap and you can i set it up so it's like fencing so i create a cut a little door in it and i open it up and i go through and i close the door and you create multitude of those as you go up kind of in this low spot into a terrain setting which you're hunting the bench maybe you're hunting the you know the top of a, a, a mountaintop or hilltop and you're connecting the dots between two bedding areas and you're hunting in the, the transition there. So I'm creating an off-limits area for deer in a saddle. A lot of people think of saddles for hunting purposes, and I'm thinking them specifically for access purposes. And, and why I say that is saddles tend to be a compression point with air, and air flows very erratically up and down those saddle points. They use them as a scent checking location. So if I can get them off those locations and I can use it as an access point, the one thing is The the trick here is to make the sides of that buffer zone that are traveling parallel, hinge cutting those trees, making it not hospitable to deer. Because a lot of times if the steepness is great enough, they won't bed in those areas. So you're going to, if there's like, let's say there's a flat spot adjacent to one of those, I'll dump rocks in it. I'll dump any debris I can in that just to make sure they're not bedding some distance away. And that distance that distance that we're talking about is is really, really critical of where those deer are residing. Like Todd said earlier, where are they residing in relationship to your access point? And that's, that's something we can hit on in a little bit.
1: John, that's a brilliant idea to, because that's part of the problem is you cut in access trails and deer being lazy, they use them. And that's counterproductive to what we're trying to do. That's a brilliant idea to put fencing across it with a little gate that you can open, but it inhibits or, or, makes the deer not want to use it as much. That's a great idea.
0: It's it's something I did a few years ago. I work a lot of like very sloped areas. You know, they they may be 15, 20 degrees, you know, 30 degrees. And you, you're dealing with these like mountainous areas. I, w- I was just, just got back from Vermont. I was working on a property out there. And, you know, you're dealing with these very steep terrain settings, you know, across these landscapes. And you got to come up with a lot of different concepts. That's that's one that I use Quite a bit. And interior to that, you want to have a lot of trail systems for the deer that they're going to leverage. So they're not as interested in, in the trail system that, that you you kind of come up with in, in that in that landscape setting.
1: And if you can, when I create those trails through a wooded area, like you're talking about, or with the saddles and benches, we have, we call them kettles here, Kettle Moraine National Forest, State Forest here. The ones that we use for access, if you make them, and this is something that, can be used in different applications, but keep in mind that deer don't like perfectly straight trails with brush on each side because they're predator traps. So when they get in there, a coyote can run them or any kind of predator can get in. They like it to be crooked trails that they go down, they feel safer on them where they can't
0: run down. You bring up a good point, which is, has nothing to do with access. And I'll, I'll take this on a tangent for a second. And, and, then, and then, you know, these these traps that you're talking about where, you know, predator dens or, you know, they make the deal claustrophobic, so to speak. You know, those settings that people create when they're clearing off areas, you know, they have a tendency to put this debris, if you're clearing off like a food plot setting all over, and they've got these really very confined areas where deer enter and exiting these areas. It, it creates, particularly in the areas that I'm used to hunting and the properties that I design, it creates that that trap. Exactly, they feel you know contained, overly contained, and that may not be a, a hospitable environment for deer. So definitely another tangential point, but
1: yeah, you, know. you can manipulate you can manipulate their movement to a certain extent. But it's just like on a trap line, um, coyotes you cannot fence in too much. They don't they don't like a high backing. You can do it. Was, raccoon's box you can fence in so it's, it's similar to that you can't get the deer to w- walk through too specific of an area or they're going to feel claustrophobic you can manipulate their maneuver but you don't want to make it to where it's like what we're used to one-way streets and stuff uh, driving two squared away
0: can we go back to flat terrain and <laughs> and uh because i think i think hilly terrain there's there's a lot to you know terracing and benching and you know there's just a lot of things that i've done on those areas but i like working with flat terrain it's a lot easier you know when it comes to laying out a property and options you you said switchgrass was one of the options and you also suggested a couple other you know uh, plot
1: screen plot screen um, um, dropping trees hinge cutting pines and shrubs when you know where it's going to be but that's three to five years and you know you got to be the right shrubs that they will hold their leaves into the season farther. Some of them that grow fast, drop their leaves really early, and then you lose, lose the effect of it. And as I mentioned, line properly so that it doesn't shade out your crops if it gets too tall. So then we can go on to, okay, the guy calls. I don't have any of that done. I need to get into my property. What kind of alternatives do we have? What, what, what can we do right now? Or the property has got that spot. If you could get to that spot, but there's just no way you're going to build access to it, but you know, that's the right spot. Simple. You could, here's a, here's a number of alternatives. A tractor delivers you. Take a tractor. If you have an in a tractor as in deer pay, absolutely no attention to a tractor. As a matter of fact, I just had a guy over that he wants to start in a land management business. And they were over, they wanted to see what ideas I could have for him. I always share information. Sure. And he mentioned that, when he was a kid. So this would have been way back in the seventies or eighties. There was a big buck in the neighborhood and everybody was after it. And his dad said, every time I go and spread manure, that deer standing out in the field. So he got on his, he, he said, dad, I'll spread manure tonight. He took the manure spreader out. The, that big buck stood right there. He got out of it, s- started scraping the manure and then took his gun and shot it. Now I'm not saying that's ethical. And the guy <laughs> didn't think it was nowadays either, but it just shows you how unafraid they are of a tractor and many times an ATV. So you can have your son, your wife, um, somebody drop you off of the ATV and then just drive right back out of the property and put the AV on trailer and leave or put the ATV on a trailer and leave or put it back in the garage. The tractor, the same thing. The tractor is a stop, you jump off, you make a big loop and
0: away you go. Todd one thing I, I i wonder, and just this is just one of these tactics so a tractor to me is associated with a positive uh stimuli right it you know the tractor is is ever present on the landscape you know a truck may be similar to that, an a t v may or may not be similar to that i I would say like in some of the areas that I'm hunting or used to being involved with with other individuals, use of a t v to the tree stand you know hunting right off it you know the deer kind of build you know knowledge base you know their their cognitive ability is is there to some degree you know neurotically they recognize a negative stimuli which that specifically is sometimes i can think of a a few guys that i've hunted with over the years that have used those devices and shot deer out of them and of course you know they go from a positive to a negative you know they're they're used to that tractor device on the landscape and all of a sudden now that's a shooting vehicle that, that comes yeah. at them. So, you know, it's kind of that negative stimuli piece of it. And then the other thing I or I hadn't mentioned, but, you know, these standard movements. So if there's consistent movement across the road or consistent move across a terrain feature and that movement is ever present, it may not even matter what the vehicle is. They're so used to vehicles being consistently down that road path that maybe a drop off location makes sense. You may not use that ATV to get. Deep deepen the property because that's not where it's that's not commonplace that's not where it normally is I, I think
1: additionally is the key is the vehicle has to leave so even if it is something that they they decide is nefarious activity or threatening activity as long as it leaves it's all good It can't, you can't drive it to your stand, leave it there or drive a tractor and leave it there. It's drive in, you dropped off and that tractor just continues and goes right back out or the ATV just continues as you slide off of it. I mean, I've already been on my property on ATV when my kids are little and you turn around a deer is standing and you can go, you go by it without stopping. So you're right though. If you start shooting off of it or you do that, you're going to train them in a hurry. Pavlov's mule, they're going to take off. So, Tractor ATV two in one out. If uh, you know how many times you're walking through the woods and you see a deer and if you stop, it takes off. But if you keep walking, no problem. So frequently, if you don't have access, you don't have a tractor or you don't have ATV access. If two people walk in and you're not sneaky at all, you're just walking along, looking at this, pointing, talking to each other. One guy slips up the tree as the other guy keeps on walking and walks right back out of the property. And that's another way to insert somebody into an area that you don't have either haven't made access yet, or it's an area that is the spot, but very difficult to get into. That's another way to do it. And then last, but not least, a way that I use on my own property and on the property that, uh, that I lease is the dust them off method. So there's a few areas there that are really good hunting, but the does bed where they can, there's no matter how you look at it, the does can see out of their bedding into your access. So I'll walk in just in my street clothes very casually, like I'm a farmer or anybody else, just walking in to see the, to look around. And as I circle around, you might see some deer run, they dust them off, but they're not freaked out like you're doing a deer drive You don't walk in sneaky like you're after them. You just walked in. You're just another person walking through the woods. It dusts them off of that area, and they normally want to circle around and come right back in within 45 minutes. So it gives me time to go back out, put on my camouflage, grab my bow, and go boogie up a tree, and usually I sit there for about a half hour, 45 minutes, and here come the deer again.
0: I I like that idea. I think from a design standpoint, and, again, we're talking about access, but from a design standpoint – one of the strategies I have is, you know, multiple layers of bedding. We've kind of talked about that a little bit before, but you've got these bedding pools. Essentially, they go from one to the other. And you're, if you're going to blow them out of that area, you've got kind of a buffer between you and the deer, uh, potentially. And then from that point, you've got another layered bedding area. And it just gives them options so they don't necessarily, you know, blow out of the country. And again, it's it's making sure that they're not relating your movement to some, some negative stimuli that that again is is consequential or or problematic for for your hunting opportunity so Todd let me let me take you to the other piece of this and I think access is one of these things where again everyone puts a lot of emphasis on it and it's really important I think for those designing hunting properties because I like to bring the deer to the like the location that I'm hunting so I will create dead zones. And, and I want to be clear about one thing. Everyone talks about the strategy of, you know, outside in and, you know, hunting from the outside and slowly creeping in. And then eventually you creep back out during gun season. So it's kind of, you know, it's this it's progressive, intrusive nature. Then you slowly regress, right? I go in to make kill decisions when a deer, I believe, is ready to be taken in a specific area. I, I don't have a large piece of land and I have limited access. I have access from the east side, which is a good thing. What I've had to do as a result of having limited access is to create a lot of dead zones. So I said earlier, I lose a lot of space as a result of that. So if you have 50 acres, now you're going to have to cut off chunks of it and you're going to have to make those, you know, not hospitable to deer. So those areas now become wasted space, right? So when you're buying a piece of property, there may be only be you know, out of 50 acres, 30 of those may be huntable now. And likely I'm only going to hunt maybe a, a small percentage of that because remainder I'm leaving, you know, to the deer for that matter. So in this example, when you're talking about property layout and bringing deer to you, what do you like to do? How do you set the trap? Because I think that's really something people pay attention to is how do you bring deer to you?
1: Well, obviously, I mean, you, you, I do the funnels towards the interior for just talking about a generic piece of property, say rectangular shaped or square shaped, access is usually on the sides. And I try to establish the, the bedding in the middle and the transitions in between that and the food plots from there. So you get them as deep as you can. And then as it comes out, I'll have another bedding and another zone that they have to go through. And the more you can do that, the more daylight activity they spend on your property before they get to the next property. And the more amount of time that they're disturbed, they don't completely leave the property because they know just a couple levels back, they're
0: solid safe again. I think that's a good point to make. You've kind of got this, like I said earlier, you've got this stage bedding throughout. Now, you gave some examples earlier about leaf drop and worrying about that either in field settings and in this case, it could be on the edge of a field, or it could be within the interior, because you're hunting within the interior of the property. And maybe interior, we're only talking fifty, seventy, a hundred yards. You're not getting as deep as you you might be in in other cases. What type of species are you you're thinking from a shrubbery standpoint? Anything just stick out in your mind? Something that you know maybe this is a good species that has. Uh, a later leaf drop, or um, it's maybe more epicorn, it's got more structure to it, so it hides you behind. Anything stands out to you, maybe in drier settings?
1: Well, a lot of silver maple hold their leaves here till really late. They're good hinge trees, and they hold their leaves really late. Additionally, some of the swamp white oak will hold their leaves really late, and those are the acorns I'll harvest and grow oak trees the next year with, because it's a, it's one that's holding its leaves really well. The ones that don't hold leaves well are box elder, decent tree for hinging, decent tree for very early, but they drop their leaves really early. Additionally, honeysuckle is one that comes up early, it's really nice, but it drops its leaves right away. Sumac drops its leaves, probably the first ones that turn in early August and drop their leaves. Plum thickets, really good, really good for wildlife, really good habitat, but they drop their leaves really early. So, the, when I want something that's going to hold its leaves, and and I know it's a tree that the DNR hates and it's considered invasive everything, but buckthorn, I don't mind buckthorn for hinge cutting. It holds its leaves into November. You can lay it down, it it suckers right back up again. You can lay it down again. And I really don't feel it's that invasive if the soil's not disturbed. Those are just off the top of my head, some of them that that I like and that hold their hold their leaves really well.
0: All right. So I want to give another suggestion, and this is the concept of layering these specific access routes. And I'm actually going to use my own property. So I create dead zones with switchgrass and switchgrass to me is not necessarily a form of It's not a tool that I use for bedding purposes. I may use it for segregation purposes, but it's typically, I use it for buffering zones. I also use sorghum sedan grass, which is not really an edible plant. It grows really well. I I plant it late in July. It's an annual, and that's another screening tool. And then I also use willows. I'm not gonna get into specific varieties. Some are edible, some are not edible, but varieties of willow screening. And then in some cases, I will add an evergreen component of it. That's location-specific spacing specific and and a lot of times access and layering is is really the key when you create these buffer zones you need to think precisely about the depth of those buffer zones and when I say I like a grass a mid-story and an upper story plant and again willow could be one of those I coppice them I cut them really low to the ground they sprout they kind of epicorn and they make that low brushy shape And I can shape that plant and I can take those cuttings and stick them all over the place and bedding areas, wet areas, dry areas depending on the species of will that you're planting. But I've got this grass component three to four five foot size plant and then I've got an upper plant and that creates this kind of buffering zone and I'm usually trying to set up behind that. Obviously creating interest on another side of that and attracting deer to an area but I'm always thinking about relative distance and depth of those deer on the property and Todd brought up a great point with oak trees. And using their stature and status, like pin oak is a great example, where it has kind of this great shape. You can layer, it takes a long time to grow a tree like that. It's a slow grower, but you can kind of layer that tree in various orientations to create a buffer between you and the deer. And that just helps support that access. I think that's a, a good example there. And Todd, I'm not opposed to using buckthorn either in that example that, that you kind of laid out because I've done the same, same thing. Because a lot of clients... They're not focused on getting rid of non-native plants. It's ever present on the landscapes. You know, they're not going to take the time to manage it. So it's either my responsibility, which they don't want to pay me for, and they're not going to do it. So we've got to work with the vegetation sometimes we have, even though we recommend removing it, right? Sometimes, you know, there's that's the only understory because the the
1: woods is too mature. But it's, say it's on the edge of a marsh. You know, those mature trees drink 250, 300 gallons a day. So if you take out the mature trees to try and daylight, it could flood and you, t- you created a wetland that you don't want. So the understory is the buckthorn. It's already there. I would never plant it. So you lay it down and it's an excellent tree versus removing it, um, they'll bet in it. it's, it's just another way to do it. And I just want to mention, when you talk about pin oak and all the trees, I just had this with a client the other day. He said, well, those trees take so long to grow. You have to keep in mind that the nurseries that grow trees, the, the like, say, two inch caliper, 15 feet tall that you see at nursery centers to buy for $150, they're turning that stock over every five years in a nursery. So it's all about the care you take. If you just stick a tree in, and this is why I plant less trees and take better care of them and build up from there than putting in a million. But if you put in a tree tube, automatically that's 600% growth they've proven 600% more growth. Then on the second year, not the first year, I just take a tool bulb planter on a, on a cordless drill and punch a couple holes at the drip line. I dump triple 19 or triple 18 fertilizer in those holes. You'll, that's the only difference. When you look at a nursery, there's those dirt rolls down all around the tree because that's the best horticulture practice. There's no competition from weeds taking any of their nourishment or competing for water. So Fertilize and keep the dirt away from on a second year. And in five years, you've got a significantly good tree. In seven to eight years, you got something you could start thinking about leaning a ladder against. You definitely is is putting a screen. So I always talk to clients about that. They think, oh, if I put in trees, it takes so long. Not if you take care of them.
0: Yeah, so sometimes less trees are more. And that's a great example. Yeah. And picking the right trees, in those from those nursery settings when i go in it's like when i pick tomato plants i go to the you know my wife and i we play we have a garden we plant tomato plants a lot of times what somebody will do is they'll go in and pick the straightest biggest largest semi plants that they have and they don't actually look at the container size the container size and the related root content is the thing you focus on first and and that like is a misnomer when i've got so much information to share on soil and soil health things that i'm going to bring up in future podcasts but i'm telling you when you pick plants the right plants healthy plants and you put them in the right location it's game over i'd rather plant five good plants in the right location than a hundred or 150. And, you know, sometimes we think about quantity wins and quality wins and that's the yeah. difference there. Totally agree. Excellent point. So you actually already hit on this point and you've like fast forward to one of the you know, things that I'm, I'm working on with client. I've got a couple, um, my partner does earthworks. He, he has a dozer, right? He does dozer work on, on properties. And I've had clients over the past couple of years, and I hope one of them's listened to this. So he'll move forward on his job. He's got to put a big berm all the way up and he's got all, all the material to do that. You know, creating this insulation, berms to me are insulative. They create this separation between you and terrain features or you and the deer or you and the animal, whatever the case may be. That can be a, in a flat land area, it can be the, it can be a huge benefit. And they're not new. I mean, I've seen berms be put up on the side of the road to separate a house from a, from a road. I mean, to separate a pond where people want to, you know, enjoy themselves. They don't want to look at the road, They don't want to put a fence. They want you know, that landscape to be, and you can work off landscape like that. Uh, You can plant trees on top of those. You can make it look a a little more aesthetically appealing. And I, I would say if you own a dozer, you have access to a dozer, you're having somebody come in to put a food plot. I may think about actually putting a berm in before I put in a food plot because I can create the same amount of food availability for deer instead of a food plot in that same location. And I get the utilization of having this dozer worked for four or five hours building me this nice berm maybe in front of my tree stand you know where i can get in and out into the tree stand and and it's a v-shape and i've got elevation to my advantage and i'm just what i'm saying is you know that's a great option for a lot of people in the landscape and i've worked with berms over the past several years and they really seem to be a mainstay or a very permanent opportunity that you don't have to worry about time. You don't have to worry about the the tree eventually growing, uh, having to manage a plant. You don't have to worry about those things, but it's more of a permanent strategy. And maybe Todd, you brought this point up with me is maybe you want to have temporary things in place before you get to that permanent structure. You want to talk a little bit about temporary, maybe permanent options. Well, unless it's, well,
1: I talk about that because a lot of property, they show up on there's a tree line or perhaps a berm or something that people wish it wasn't there wish they would have put in a different spot so that's why I like to grow a number of years with a temporary the the white tail suit conceal or the plot screen or like use Egyptian wheat until I get it dialed in like this is exactly where we want it and this is where we want an opening for the deer to come through and this is going to be my access then. A, a berm can be done right away along the roadsides. I do it on a lot of different properties, especially where the road is higher and the land dips down because that's hunting land versus land a lot of times. And there rubs aren't going to work. You have to use trees. So if you could get a berm pushed up, you just gained, you know, three, five, eight, however many feet you push it up of height that they have to grow on. Additionally, in a wet area, it's hard to get anything, especially if it's already has canary and it. it's hard to get anything to go. So there by pushing up burns or even little humps become bedding. I go back in cattail swamps all the time and I'll use my tractor or we'll use something else to push up a buck bed of some sort, you know, it just has to be five by eight feet tall. And sometimes I stick on a tree on it and sometimes I don't those becomes those little elevations are just like uh, muskrat houses that deer like to lay on top of artificial muskrat house in a sense um, works really slick and then you can top some of the treetops and drag them out there too as well that that's the kind of work that i do this time of the year because you can get access out into those areas
0: yeah and and then you know that strategy of just dragging treetops potentially for concealment is another option things grow up in between them you said that in the last podcast you know, whatever, you know, grass that you have localized in that area will grow up in between that and it'll it'll give some structure and, and that could be a hiding function. So to your point earlier where you're extending this berm up to the road You know, think about this, you're gaining property as a result, huntable ground. You're extending your huntable ground, maximizing your overall property size, and that's important. And that's bringing the deer to you in some aspects. So I I think that's, and I, I like trying before buying. So you're laying it out, you're making sure it works before you actually jump into it. Observation, I think, is the thing that we miss the most. You know, I brought my land, and the first thing, like, I'm an implementer, I'm a consultant, I do this professionally, I sat on it a year. I marked all my yes. trees out, I came up with my plan. I treated myself like I was a consultant, uh, that I was yes. a consultant come in and what would you do? I said, wait, wait, learn the land, diagnose yeah. the, the, the property, come up with a, a real strategy. And by the way, anybody can do this. You don't need a consultant like me to tell you what to do. Take the time, to evaluate we're going to give you the tools the the whole purpose behind this podcast is we're giving you the tools we want people to succeed I don't necessarily want all the calls we, we're all a stock chop we already have the business but we want people to learn from this and I think these examples are great I'm going to add one more thing Todd because I, I like to I feel like I'm one upping right now but I'm going to add one, one thing into this conversation I worked with a client a couple of years ago. We have irrigation ditches in some areas. I know there's a lot of those out in the Midwest. Um, we don't have a ton of them, but when you do have them, you know the steepness of them and the size of them you can sometimes fit a man down those or a hunter down those and taking advantage if you have an excavator or you can do it by hand if you're very you know you're very agile, uh, digging out those areas and building up these tunnels. You know this is this is the way they fought wars and this is the way that we hunt deer building these tunnels into these access points um, where you can sneak in and out of an area if you've got land where you can you know get an excavator in there and dig kind of in my example with the saddle you're using these low spots and you're accessing through these low spots and again building up taking some of the earth and and creating mounds on either side are gonna give you kind of that separation between you and the deer and and it's gonna isolate you. I mean you could cut right through a field in that example and get in and out and the deer could be on either side of you and and just some opportunities to to think about, you know, if, if you have access to equipment. Not everyone has a big excavator. You can use a little mini X to get some of these things done if you already have irrigation ditches, but you know, think about that as an, an alternative, and that can be in a lot of different settings where where you have the ability to to utilize those things, especially if you have streams, you know, utilizing, you know, any type of waterway where you have really steep sides. You can make it less hospitable to deer and more hospitable to access and get in there and cut your trails, you know, run your chainsaws, clear those things out.
1: I'm going to hire Whitetail Landscapes, John Teeter, to del- <laughs> dig a tunnel to the middle of my food plot with a little hatch like Gilligan's Island where I can pop up and shoot them right <laughs> right there. no that's an excellent idea that's a good that's a great point so we have time for two more quick quick uh access
0: tips yes yes let's go people okay. want to hear it so let's do it one. walk you're
1: walking in i always have when you're going in in the dark and you're going down your trail and maybe leaves fell and now it's crunchy or some sticks fell on after a windstorm and it's getting crunchy and your trail's not clean as you like instead of going with a blower always have a turkey call and if you snap or you're making some noise you everybody knows you wouldn't walk with the same cadence a human cadence you try to take two or three steps just like a deer or a raccoon or something going through the woods is does uh, squirrel and then you can putt a couple times on a turkey call make them think that oh there's just some turkeys going through there or i will i've already taken a grunt in a can and actually run a few steps grunt call. Uh, can and then get up in the tree and it actually attracts deer to the noise instead of scaring them away from the noise um they think there's some commotion going on over there during the rut you know have deer come walking in right afterwards and then last but not least here's one of the things i really wanted to get in as a tip during this this podcast because it works really good for clients that have cabins that are in a remote area that they're not normally there. They just drive up there for the weekend or they're up there for the week during the rut. There's not normally neighbors or people around. I've done this for a number of clients and it works excellent. Um, If they can hang a radio outside under the eaves and turn it up to pretty good volume and just let it run the whole time, then it has people talking and it has uh, cars going and motors running and, and music playing. And it gets the deer to just realize that there's just always a commotion there. The hunt's not over as soon as you unchain the gate and drive in and every deer there knows suddenly there's people there and the mature bucks automatically are going nocturnal. They're not gonna come out right away. But this way you leave and it takes a couple weeks and they just get, it's just the, the drone of human activity, no different than hunting next to a subdivision or hunting where there's a active farm where there's a lot more human activity that the deer learn to tolerate, you can kind of condition the northern deer or the remote deer the same way with that trick. It's, uh, and I know you had a trick similar to that, that somebody does to kind of condition the deer so that it's not an instant cue that there's suddenly people here and the only time they're here is they're hunting me.
0: Yeah, I had a client uh, several years. I love this. Like this, this is like the tactic that people don't think about. Your example is awesome. Running a radio, turning it up. I had a client, and this was uh, sometimes used by multiple people. A family cabin. People are coming and going all the time, and then you know, part of the family was using it. You know, strictly as a hunting camp, and they were running. They had a big microphone outside almost like uh that you'd see uh, in an office setting where they're yelling at the workers and you know in, in in the manufacturing plant you know and that would broadcast their ringing phone uh, it would broadcast any radio they could play everything off it so if you have the ability to do that to todd's point you know microphone yeah. this stuff out there and and uh, the deer become accustomed to it and it becomes less of a threat and particularly like you said those remote areas which a lot of people have camps i mean this is I don't think uh, I've heard many consultants make that recommendation. This is uh, this is the nitty gritty. This is how you become successful. This type of stuff.
1: Yeah. It's the auditory version of nose jamming them, right? <laughs> yeah. Nose jam and try to overwhelm them. I mean, it's the auditory version of that. Um, it works really well. You can condition them. So there's always either to be really sneaky or I guess to sum it up, you can be really sneaky or you can be really obvious. Both ways may work at different times
0: yeah, that's a good way to end it, Todd. And uh, I think we we jammed a lot in here. We gave a lot of strategy. If uh, you know people want to get a hold of us, I would say, please do that. I'm asking everyone to do one thing, one simple thing, go in, review this podcast, provide a comment. I really appreciate this. We're doing this to help educate the, the public, the people that want to hunt deer, that want to be strategic, that want to improve their property, that may not be willing or able to hire a consultant. That's the whole purpose behind this. We've got a lot of experts on this podcast, and I, I truly love you know doing this thing. I'm doing this because I want to give back. Todd wants to give back. You know We want to be part of the community that, that's willing to share and educate those around us. So thanks for following, Todd. Thanks for being on the podcast today. We'll catch you again. Thanks, John. Take care.
1: Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out WhitetailLandscapes.com.